Lord, we're thankful for um, you. We're thankful for the truth of your word. We pray uh, that you would work in our lives this morning as we turn to it and seek to learn from it. Lord, we're thankful as the world around us changes that you remain the same. Lord, we pray as the culture shifts and shifts drastically uh, that you would help us to remain firm, resolute, Lord, resolved on the truth of your word. I pray that the text we look at this morning you would use to conform us more and more to the image of your Son. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, it's, it's absolutely vital to know and understand that the Bible as a whole is a story. And when I say it's a story, I don't mean it is a made-up story or a, a fairy tale. But I mean it's a, a historically true and theologically rich telling of who God is, what he's done, and what he will do. The whole Bible is a story. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, there's one constant and consistent story being told. We all know how it begins. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates this perfect world, sinless, full of peace and pleasure, but it doesn't take long until all that changes. He forms and, and fashions Adam and Eve, and he tells them to enjoy everything that he's created, except for one thing. And he tells them to avoid one thing in the garden. Stay away from this one tree. Don't eat of the fruit of this one tree. And, and, and they couldn't do it. The devil met them in the garden, tempted them. They were deceived. Instead of believing the promises of God, they bought into the lies of the devil. And as a result, they and all humanity to follow were cast into a downward spiral and, 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 and endured this awful curse. But before the curse of sin was pronounced in Genesis 3:16 to 19, in verse 15 of chapter 3, God gives them this, this hope-filled promise. Right? right after they commit this sin, he gives them a hope-filled promise that somebody would come to make right everything they just made wrong. That somebody would come to fix everything they just destroyed. And now we can be confident they didn't fully understand what God meant at that time, but we know looking back that that was a clear declaration of Jesus and the work that he would accomplish in, in giving people the opportunity to be made right with God. All right, so all of the Bible from this point on, is about that. It's about, it's about Jesus and his coming and his doing this incredible work. And, and the rest of the Old Testament is just full of events that point ahead to Christ and the work that he would accomplish. Let me just show you a few of these real quick. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to write them down, Genesis 22. Right? In Genesis chapter 22, we see God instruct Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son Isaac. Right? And, and we're familiar with the story, but Abraham goes and, and he's, he's obedient to the Lord and he takes his son and, and they go up this mountain and he, he builds an altar and binds his son and places him on the altar. And just as he's about to take the knife to his son's throat, an angel of the Lord stops him 
and provides a, a ram as a sacrifice instead. The Lord was pleased with Abraham's willingness to obey him. But this points ahead to another time when we'd see another father and son on a mountain. And this time, there was no alternate sacrifice. There was no substitute. Jesus Christ, the perfect son, was sacrificed on our behalf. And God the Father poured out all of his righteous indignation upon his son so that we might have eternal life. Exodus chapter 12 records the Passover while the Israelites were in Egypt. God told them in Exodus chapter 12 that an angel was coming who would kill all the firstborn. And the only way to be saved from that, the only way to be spared of that was to to take the blood of an animal and place it on the the doorposts of their house. The angel would pass over and and, and he would pass over that house and and not, not kill the firstborn. And in a similar manner, the only way that we can survive, right, the only way that we can, we, we can escape eternal death is to have the blood of Christ painted on our hearts and applied to our accounts. Just two, two chapters later in Exodus 14 is recorded the incredible, miraculous event of the actual Exodus as the Israelites leave Egypt. Right? They, they've, they've been in bondage here. But God is freeing them from this bondage. And he parts the sea and they walk through on dry land. And then just as they pass, the waters collapse back on the Egyptians and kill them. And there's so much to that story that we could focus on. But one of the primary aspects is this deliverance of God's people. And it points ahead to another deliverance that God would work for his people. Not from an earthly captor, but from spiritual bondage. The Israelites, God's chosen people, were in slavery to the Egyptians. And we, believers, God's chosen people, are in slavery. But we're not in slavery to, to Egyptians. We, we were in slavery to sin. Right? And just as God freed his people in Exodus 14 from the slavery they endured, he, he has freed us from the slavery and the bondage that we were that we endured. Colossians 1.13 says that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son. All right, and, and there are many more instances that we could look at in the Old Testament, but I just, I just want to make clear that the entirety of Scripture is about Christ. It, it's about this central figure. And as many great men of the faith have noted, the Old Testament is, is about Jesus Christ, but it's concealed. Right, but the New Testament is about Jesus revealed. We see him in all his beauty. But there are four books located at the head of the New Testament where we meet Christ in a really unique and special way. These four Gospels record the person and work of Christ while he was on earth. And our text this morning of study will be Mark chapter 6. Gospel of Mark chapter 6. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Mark makes clear his purpose for writing. He gives us his thesis statement. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Right, it, it's, it's clear that Mark's focus and purpose in writing to us is that he would give us all the evidence he could to make it clear that, that this Jesus really was God. That he wasn't just a man, but that he was the Son of God. One Bible teacher wrote these words concerning the Gospel of Mark. He said, Everything in it is designed to give us all the evidence we could possibly need to prove that Jesus is God in human flesh. Every paragraph directs its attention at the person and work of Christ. That's consistent with all the gospel accounts, but it's certainly Mark's great intention that we would see Christ in all his majesty and glory. Now, if you haven't done so already, you can go ahead and open, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We'll be looking this morning at verses 45 to 56. And it's my hope and prayer as we look now at this, at this text of Scripture that just as that Bible teacher wrote, we would see and we would savor and we would treasure Jesus Christ in all his majesty and glory. So if you'll follow along as I begin reading in verse 45, Mark writes, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were made well. Now we're jumping into the middle of Mark's gospel account. So we need to just recognize a couple things that have taken place thus far. Right? At this point in, in Jesus' ministry, he's probably already about halfway through his earthly ministry, which in total lasted about three or three and a half years. All right? he, he's done some pretty incredible things thus far. Right? He, he's been hard at work preaching and teaching. He's completed a wide variety of miraculous works. All right? And the miracles that Jesus has performed so far have just been absolutely extraordinary. But there's one that stands out from all the rest. All right? And the one that stands out is the one that precedes our text. All right? If we look to the verses just prior to verse 45, we see Mark's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Right, it's important to note that Mark says that this is the feeding of the 5,000 men. Scholars have 
dated, we could conservatively estimate about 25,000 people. There were miracles that Jesus performed where thousands and thousands of people watched, but none had reached this degree of participation. If we were to take the time to look at all four of the gospel accounts, we would see that there are only two miracles that each of the four authors record, that all four authors record. One's the resurrection of Christ, and the other is this, the feeding of the 5,000. And it's, it, it's so important that all four of them record it because this miraculous work represents the pinnacle of, of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. All right? Mark doesn't record how the people respond to Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000, but John does. In John's account, he tells us how the crowd responded. John 6, 14 and 15 says this, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This really is the prophet who was to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus knew they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Concerning this text in, in Mark 6 here, John MacArthur makes these notes. He says, The enthusiasm for Jesus reaches its fever pitch after the miracle of feeding this massive crowd. The people wanted to take him and make him a king. They were ready to start a revolt, revolution, a rebellion. Jesus would be their leader. They were sure of his amazing, miraculous power. They knew that he would not only heal their bodies, deliver them from disease, raise them from the dead, but he would be their source of permanent food supply. And so they were ready to make him a king. They were certainly ready to have him overthrow Herod and all the other petty Herodians who who had pieces of Israel over which they ruled. They were ready to take on Rome itself with Jesus as their ruler. This was the crowd's response to the massive nature of this miracle and what it demonstrated about his power to provide for them. But there's a big problem with this. This wasn't God's plan. Jesus had no intention to lead a revolution or a rebellion or a revolt against the government. He didn't come with a plan of hostile takeover. His plan was to humbly lay his life down. He didn't come to kill. He came to die. Which is why we read in Mark 6, verse 45, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. The people were trying to take Jesus and make him a king. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, helpfully describes the situation. The crowd had dangerously been fueled with messianic fervor after the feeding. Jesus wanted to get the disciples out of there unless they fuel the fire even more. He says, evidently Jesus had some difficulty getting them into the boat because of the phrase, he made his disciples get into the boat. It's a strong expression indicating urgency and pressure. The twelve were like reluctant children who've been out all day with their friends and don't want to get in the car to go home. But Jesus corralled them, insisting that they get in the boat, and he probably gave them a, a push, forcing them out onto the sea. All right, and all of that is background information to looking this morning now at what takes place after he sent his disciples out and he dismissed the crowd. All right, so as we look at the rest of this section of text this morning, we're going to see three things that Jesus does after he sends out his disciples and dismisses the crowds. 
Three things he does. The first is this. Jesus communes with his father. Verse 46, Jesus communes with his father. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Verse 45 again tells us Jesus sent off his disciples, dismissed the crowd. So it's clear he was able to convince the crowd at least for a moment that that their plan wasn't the best plan because they all left. And, And now that he's alone, without any distractions, he climbs a mountain to spend time alone with his father. Mark doesn't tell us exactly what he prayed for, and, and neither do the other gospel writers. But I think we can be pretty sure that probably one of the things Jesus prayed for was his disciples. And, and I think that, that the scriptures as a whole give us assurance of this, because Jesus often prayed for his disciples. Luke 22, just prior to telling Peter that he was going to deny him, Jesus told him, Peter, I've prayed for you. And we know John 17, often called the, the high priestly prayer, almost the entire thing is, a, is Jesus praying for his own, his people. But I find it interesting that, that as soon as Jesus is alone, as soon as he's free from all the distractions around him, the first thing he does is seclude himself to pray. The moment he's free from from all the distractions of this life, he he takes time to be alone with his Father. And I think this should serve to greatly convict us. How often in our own lives do we have ample opportunity to approach the Father? We fill our lives with all sorts of distractions. Prayer can can be so easily interrupted by the smallest things. And, And Jesus here gives us great encouragement to free ourselves from the snares of the world so that our eyes can be wholeheartedly cast to the throne of the Father. May we be quick, just as Jesus was, to faithfully approach the Father in prayer. All right, but I don't think it's just conviction we should feel. I think we should also feel greatly encouraged, right? knowing that, that the Lord of all creation prays for us, that he intercedes on our behalf. All right, so the first thing that Jesus did after he dismissed the crowd and, and, and sent off his disciples. He communed with his father. But we see a second thing now. The second thing that Jesus does is, is he cares for the disciples. Jesus cares for the disciples. Look at verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Jesus had, had sent the disciples out on the boat alone, which shouldn't have been a, a big issue at all. Right? If, if we know anything about the Gospels as a whole and the disciples that are, that are clearly depicted in them, some of these guys were professional fishermen. Right? So, so sending them out on the sea shouldn't have been an issue. They were... They were very well accustomed to it. They knew how to navigate on the water. All right, so it's strange that we read in verse 48, they were making headway painfully, the wind, the wind was against them. And if we look at the language of this, and then we look at John chapter 6, where John also records this account, John tells us they, they were three to four miles out in the middle of the sea. 
Mark here tells us that they were making headway painfully. If we, we looked at a map of, of where they were and where they were being sent, knowing that it's the time of day that it is, it's nighttime, they, they would have followed a course that kept them closer to shore. And so it's, it's odd that we read that, that they're making headway painfully. They're out in the middle of the sea. And the reason they are is, is because this wind is just, just beating them up. Right? This wind is battering against them. And it's taking them off course. And at first glance, we could look at this and think, well, this shouldn't have even happened. Right? If Jesus was there, he'd take care of it. Why, why is he even letting the disciples just sit out in the water, being beat by the wind, knocked off course? Why, why is he there to help them? The answer isn't clearly given here, but... But I think one of, the, one of the things that he's doing is he's trying to strengthen their faith in him. He, he's trying to develop in them an enduring faith, a real faith, a, a true faith. Right? And, and we can know that because that's why the Lord allows us to go through difficult times also. He, he allows us to go through difficulties to strengthen our faith, to increase our faith in him, to develop a, a more true and enduring faith in him. The loss of a job, enduring sickness and disease, experiencing marital hardship, watching your loved ones suffer, maybe even to the point of death, being persecuted for your faith. And we walk through life in a world that is full of hardship. But it's all at the hand of a good and gracious God who's trying to make us more like his son, which will bring him more pleasure and glory. But Jesus didn't just leave them there that night. He didn't just leave them out in the middle of the ocean, making headway painfully. If we look at verse 48 again, it says that he saw them. Right? Mark, Mark, tells, that Mark tells us he saw them, and at the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them. Right? The nighttime hours were divided up into four sections, four, four segments. You have the, the first watch would have been 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., Second watch, 9 p.m. to 12 a.m., the third, 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., and the fourth, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. All right, since, since this text follows the, the feeding of the 5,000, right, we can be, we can be sure that, that Jesus fed those people sometime in the evening, right, and he sent the disciples out right after. It's now the fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. the next day. They've been out on the boat all night. Right? They've been making headway painfully all night. The disciples were struggling. The wind was just beating against them. They were unable to accomplish their desired trip. And they were in desperate need of the Lord's help. The disciples had, had set out for their destination. But this wind had come in. Right? And, and at this point, you can see... Sails being down, the oars are out, right? And they're just driving across the sea, just trying to make, make their destination. Peter had probably taken charge. Right? The text doesn't tell us that, but we, we could see that happening, right? Peter with his soggy beard, bellowing orders, the other disciples just looking up at him. All right, think of the misery that they were, they were in in that cockpit, the cold water, 
out there all night. They're struggling. Imagine what's going through their minds. They've got to be thinking, where on earth is Jesus? Where is he? Why did he leave us here? Is he punishing us for something? Is he trying to torture us? What did we do wrong? And just as these thoughts reach their climax, we're told in verse 48 that Jesus saw them being battered by the wind. And whether this indicates that Jesus actually, with his physical eyes, saw them in the middle of the night, or it's just a reference to his divinity, the point is clear either way. His focus and attention was on his disciples. And from this, I think we can harvest a great truth of application. The human tendency during great difficulty is to imagine the face of God with just blind eyes. He doesn't see us. He doesn't know what we're going through. He doesn't, or he doesn't care. But this text teaches just the opposite. Just the opposite. Followers of Christ who are enduring the storms of life are special objects of his attention. They are special objects of his focus. All right, and I think as we look here, that should serve, that should serve to greatly encourage us. Jesus' attention was on his disciples as they were enduring difficulty that night. He's always aware of where his people are, and he always knows what we're going through. All right, if, if we look at the very end of verse 48, there's an interesting statement there, depending on your translation, it'll be a little different. In the ESV it says, he meant to pass by them. All right, and, and at first read, that kind of makes no sense. Since we know that he's going out onto the sea for the disciples, why would he mean to pass by them? Well, it, it literally means he, he meant to come alongside them. He meant to come alongside them. They were the reason he went onto the water. He, he wasn't playing games with them. He wasn't trying to leave them. They were the reason he was there, and he knew exactly when he needed to be there. So after spending so many hours out on the boat all night, the disciples needed Jesus, right? They wanted Jesus. Do you think their response at seeing him would be one of just sheer joy, right? Excitement. He's here. But that's not what we see. Verse 49 says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, thought it was a ghost, and cried out. These are grown men, right? These are grown men that up to this point, I assume, have probably done their fair share of yelling that night. But this was an entirely different yell. This yelling or crying out in verse 49 was just one of, of sheer terror. They're panicked. They don't know what to do. They just saw somebody walking on the water. All right? and, and their panic is rightly understood. Water walking isn't something that humans regularly do. So, so the fear is, is understandable. But Jesus being gracious and kind, he, he doesn't leave them in that state of fear. Verse 50 is the climax of the whole story. All right? Verse 50, prior to verse 50, everything's just been rising tension. Right? But verse 50, Jesus opens his mouth, and these are the most important words of the entire story. He says this, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. 
All right, the first thing he said to him was take heart, right? Have courage. Literally meaning be brave, get a grip. Right? He, he's telling them to calm down and to exercise some self-control. All right, and the third thing he says, do not fear, do not be afraid. Now, both of these, take heart and do not be afraid, are useless unless he clarifies who he is, right? If a ghost tells you, take heart, do not be afraid, that does nothing to help me take heart or not to be afraid, right? So, so, so the middle phrase here is just crucial. Jesus says, take heart, have courage, it is I, do not be afraid. In many commentaries that I looked at, this phrase, it is I, is almost just passed over. All right, but I, I, think it's, I think it's the key, the main point of the whole story. All right, and it goes along with Mark's, Mark's purpose in writing his gospel account. Remember verse 1, chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right, this phrase, it is I, is translated from two little words in the original language, ego, a, me, which literally mean... I am. Right? I am is how, is how God has revealed himself throughout the entire Old Testament to his people. All right? Jesus would get stones thrown at him at the end of John chapter 8 for making the declaration before Abraham was, I am. Right? So here, as, as he tells his disciples, it's me, I am. He is making a declaration about himself that he's God. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the chosen one. He's the one that Genesis 3.15 spoke about. So as Jesus speaks and, and, and clearly tells them, I'm, I am. It's me. We might expect the disciples would, would respond with joy now, right? Now they're not afraid. Now they, they know who he is, but again, we, we see something different than expected. Verse 51, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. All right? They were astounded. Why? The following verse tells us they were astounded because they didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't understand the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't understand what was taking place. Wonderful New Testament scholar William Hendrickson says these words. The reason that they were astounded about the loaves is that they didn't grasp what it implied about Christ's power to bend the material universe to his wishes. The trouble was with their hardened hearts. When Mark says their hearts were hardened, probably a reference to their inability to draw the necessary conclusions from the miracles of Jesus. As a result of sinful neglect to ponder and meditate on the marvelous works and on the nature of the one who performed them. So now as Jesus gets into the boat, they, they don't stay in this astounded state too long. They don't, they don't remain shocked and amazed too long Matthew tells us that, that after they've, they've experienced this shock and amazement, that they respond to Jesus. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 14, verses 32 and 33, 
that when Jesus got into the boat with the disciples, they worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. All right? Flip your Bibles back with me. Just a couple pages to Mark chapter 4. All right? In Mark 4, starting in verse 35, we're presented with the account where Jesus calmed a storm while his disciples were out on the sea. A, a, a very similar situation. All right? And in verse 41 of Mark 4, after Jesus has tamed this storm, verse 41 says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this man that even the nature obeys him? So we go from, from one account on the water where Jesus is, is controlling the nature and, and calming storms to another account not, not too long after. And there's very different responses, right? In Mark 4, they ask, who is this man? And in Mark 6, it's not told to us, but John tells us that this account, they said, truly, you're the Son of God. Truly, you're the Son of God. All right, now they recognize who Jesus is. The Father has drawn them He's opened their eyes. Jesus has made a declaration about himself. I am. They respond appropriately with worship. They no longer wonder who he is. Now they proclaim, you're the son of God. One Bible teacher noted that this was the night that the disciples went from wonder to worship, from confusion to confession, and from fear to faith. And they were brought to faith as a result of the faithful care of Jesus. All right, so, so we've seen two things thus far in our story. One, that, that after Christ sent out his disciples and dismissed the crowd, he communed with his Father in prayer. And second, he cared for his disciples. But there's one more aspect left to our story. And that is this. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. He had compassion on the crowds. Look with me at verses 53 to 56. When they'd crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. All right, as it was the fourth watch of the night when Jesus came out to them on the boat, it's now sunrise or nearing sunrise as they reach the shore. And upon arrival, man, these people are excited. Right? They're excited. They recognize Jesus. They know that this is the man who just the night before completed this miraculous work. They're confident of, of his supernatural ability and the benefit that they can receive from it. Jesus could heal all the sick. He could provide food. And he could care for any need they had. Everyone was well aware of his miraculous capability. So they just start running to the region telling everybody, he's here. Come, he's here. People start bringing all the sick. And in verse 56, it says, Everywhere he went, 
The sick were brought, so they might touch even the tassel of his robe, the fringe of his garment. What is this about? Why why are they touching the fringe of his garment? Well, if we looked at at Mark chapter 5, there's an account of a of a woman who was suffering of a, of a discharge of blood for many years who was healed by just touching the fringe of Jesus' garment. And this is, this is miraculous. She'd been suffering for years and she just touched the edge of his clothes and, and she's healed. So this word had spread. She told people and now everyone who can get close enough to him is just seeking just, just to touch the fringe of his clothes. Right, and, and this is a perfect example of what's often called common grace, even though there's, there's just nothing common about it. It's miraculous. But, but it's, it's the grace and kindness of God just extended to all, regardless of who they are. All right, and within this account, we, we see so, so many things. We see the example that, that Jesus has, has set for us in prayer, right? freeing himself from from the distractions of this life and, and communing with his Father. Jesus, a 100% God, thought it was important enough to make time to pray. Right? We who are mere humans, finite and faulty creatures, must do the same and all the more. Right? We, we need to be quick to approach the throne of our Father in prayer freeing ourselves from the distractions of life to do so. All right, we can also take great comfort and encouragement in the fact that, that just as Christ cared for his disciples in the midst of that storm, he cares for you in the midst of life's storms. And his focus is on you. You're a special object of his attention when you endure difficulty because of your commitment to him. So be encouraged that he hasn't forgotten you. He will deliver you. But is that all we want? Do we just want to be delivered from the storms of life? Do we just want to have the, the benefits and blessings that come along with knowing Jesus? Do we want, like the crowd did, right, the, the food and the, the healings and the miraculous works, do we want that or, or do we want Jesus? Do we just want to be delivered from the storms healed from diseases, have all of our needs met? Right? Are you like the people in those crowds or like the people who sit in and fill prosperity preachers' auditoriums? You, just, you want the healing, the, the well-being. You want the wealth and the prosperity. You want to be able to chart your own course, be the designer of your own destiny. If that's what you want, it's not what Jesus offers. He doesn't offer that. While on earth, he performed miraculous works, feeding, healing, raising people from the dead, but it was all temporary. Every person he healed, every person he fed, every person he raised from the dead eventually got another disease or was hungry again or died again. Many people then and, and many people now think that think that Jesus just came to give us something better here, right? To improve our current condition. But he didn't, he didn't come to rid us of all hardship and difficulty in this life. He didn't come to just make the temporary 
better. If that's what you think, and that's what you want from Christ, you're sadly mistaken. He didn't come to offer a better life now, but a perfect life for all eternity. His primary focus wasn't on improving the temporary life, it was on granting spiritual life. All right, that night in Mark chapter 6, Jesus opened his mouth and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. If you don't know him, you're rejecting him, you have every reason to fear. But if you, like the disciples, come to him in faith, true faith, saving faith, then you can be encouraged by that statement because it's to you as well. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Go ahead and pray. Lord, we're just we're thankful for the truth of your word. Lord, we're thankful for, for this account in Mark chapter 6. Lord, we're, we're thankful for the fact that, that your eyes are on us when we endure difficulty. Lord, would you help us to be quick, just as Jesus was, to pray. Lord, and to pray often. And Lord, would you help us to come to you for what you really offer. Lord, the beauty and the majesty and the glory of yourself. Lord, Lord, not, not, not all the other things, but you. Lord, we want you. We want to see you. We want to savor you. We want to treasure you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that today. Lord, thank you for these people here. Pray that you'd protect them. Lord, again, just would you help us to remain resolved and steadfast on the truth of your word? Lord, just Quickly pray for Pastor Steve this morning. As, as Joe mentioned, this topic that he'll be speaking on this morning, Lord, I pray for clarity and boldness. And Lord, that the true church would resound with amen. We pray these things in Jesus' name.